Hi, I'm Bradley Gibson. Hi, I'm Kalina Bovell. Hi, I'm Nikki Renee Daniels. Hi, I'm Adriana Walker, and you are listening to the Call and Response Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Call and Response Podcast with Felicia Fitzpatrick. And every week, I'm so hype, I'm so thrilled, I am so excited, and this week is no exception. I met Adrian Walker sitting on March 10th, 2020, at Women's Day on Broadway in, uh, that was the New Am Theater. And I don't know how we were able to sit next to each other, but we did. And I knew who she was, y'all. Of course. I, I think I already followed her on Instagram. Like, I had seen Kiss Me Kate, all of the things. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, keep, like, play it cool, play it cool. And she was nothing but a sweetheart, so warm, so lovely, just in the, the few times we got to interact that day. Um, and we've kept up with each other since then. And so I'm so excited to chat all about her experiences um, as a performer in the opera world and the musical theater world, um, how, you know, how she became the person she is today. So please welcome Adrian Walker. Felicia, thank you so much for having me. I remember that day and I was like, hey, um, can I sit here? And you were like, yeah, girl. And I was like, <laughs> is, is this the press area? Is it okay oh, that yeah. I'm over here? And you were like, yeah, it's fine. And I was like, <laughs> all right. And I remember everybody was a little nervous because we were like, should we be in this theater together right. with all this COVID? You know, it was the whispers <laughs> of COVID. We weren't like fully in it. And people were like dapping with elbows, but and yes. not shaking hands. And, yes. you know, I was like, but I'm here for Hillary. You know, right. like I, I have to be here. Right. Yes. I forgot that it was the press area because you were like, is this allowed? But I was, I think I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's Adrian Walker talking to me, asking. I'm like, yes, please sit next to me. You're so cool. So I love that you remember those details too, because it was like, I remember wanting to shake someone's hand and the woman was like, oh, I'm doing elbows. And I was like, oh, is it getting that serious? Like I, I was not, I was one of those people who's like not aware of how serious it was until the last minute. Like, oof. Absolutely. Oh, I was like, I, I, I want my mom was like, you need to be wearing gloves. And I was like, Ma, I'm not going to be on the train with gloves. That's absurd. And she was like, you need to be wearing gloves. You need to put on a mask. I was like, Ma, everyone's gonna be staring at me. I can't. Right. Uh, mothers always know best. It's so upsetting. They do. They really do. She knew she had the foresight. She was like, look now. Right. <laughs> and now here we are a year plus later. Yeah. Wearing our gloves and our masks. Oof. Yeah. With no yeah. shame, no shame. But I am so glad we got to connect because I just think you are so talented. And like I was saying, you're just, you just, you radiate a joy that is something that can't be taught. It's something that is just inherent to one's being, I believe. Um, and so I've loved being able to stay in touch with you over the past year. Wow. Thank you. That, um, thank you. I don't, <laughs> I appreciate that. Absolutely. No, it's true. It's true. Um, and I'm so excited to learn about you and your journey to the Broadway. Um, yes. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'd love to start out with learning. How did you get involved with performing arts? It completely happened by chance. Like I, I was a shy kid and um, I, I just, <laughs> I was shy. I don't know how to explain it. Um, it's funny because uh, when a, a childhood friends parents came to see me in the lion king and they were like you used to be so shy adrian you're not shy anymore and i said oh no i'm still fully shy i just uh, have learned how to navigate this world and kind of push that aside and 
Mm-hmm. And um, but yeah, I was a really shy kid. So I I uh, I was in the church choir uh, okay. by force, <laughs> and um, I I just was in the choir. I didn't want any solos. I was like, I'm in the choir. I love to sing, but just don't put me up front, you know. Mm-hmm. And the same went for. Uh, choir in uh, public school as well. I went to public school my entire grade school experience and uh, joined the choir when I was 10. I did not make the choir the first time I auditioned. And I was really sad. I remember that. My, I remember my mom thinking, she doesn't know what she's doing. You know, she was mad. <laughs> and I was like, it's okay, Ma. You know, I'll try next time. And I, uh, I got in the choir the next time. And then I was in choir for my entire grade school career, whether it was oh. choir in uh, in the actual school, um, my sister and I did an external choir at uh, Spivey Hall. It's a it's a Spivey Hall children's choir uh, with uh, Clayton County uh, University or something. I'm I'm losing all the facts right now because I I really don't have the best memory. But we did that <laughs> for a couple of years, and uh, you know, honor choir, all say anything I could do that let me sing, I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I was still kind of shy. I was still kind of mm-hmm. shy, and so. Um, I never thought that I would have a career in performance at all, even Mm. though at home I was all over the place. Like, you know, I remember singing and jumping around and, you know, pretending to be different characters with my nieces and nephews because my uh, niece and nephew are just under me in age. Um, Uh I have a couple older siblings. And so my, I was an aunt at 18 months. So, um, so yeah, we kind of grew up like siblings in that way. And we used to go in my bedroom, all four of us, my sister and my niece and my nephew, and we would play this game called witch mama and yeah, totally ridiculous. And I, (laughs) I would be the witch mama. And we would just, it was all make-believe. It was such a land of make-believe and we enjoyed it so much. And my dad would come in and he'd be like, y'all need to go to bed, okay? This is enough, (laughs) like you're loud, it's ridiculous. And I think he was worried we were gonna hurt each other or something, but I just remember, I just have memories of playing that game. And so I know that spark was always there. It just really didn't manifest into anything until I was like, 2021 20, really and so um so high school I I didn't really know what I wanted to do for a living I had teetered between all different types of interests I want to be a chef my mom was like Adrian are you sure about that and uh, I want to be a, a scientist and a veterinarian and she was like Adrian what do you do all the time and I was like uh she's like you sing you sing all the wow. time And so I started taking some voice lessons and I had already been taking piano. My sister and I took piano from, uh, you know, fifth and sixth grade on uh, for me through college. And my sister, she still plays. I do not. Piano is definitely something if you don't use it, you will lose it. But um, (laughs) (laughs) so I I started taking voice lessons and uh, it, it progressed really quickly. And within a year, I had a scholarship at um, Mercer University in uh, Macon, Georgia. And I went to the sleepaway uh, or or whatever you call it, where you, you stay overnight and get to learn the campus and you, you know, you follow a student and shadow a student and everything. And so I went Mm. to their sleepaway and I was, you know, taking it all in. I know my parents wanted me to go there because I had a scholarship. I think it was like 60% or something significant. Oh, wow. And, And, uh, so they wanted me to go there. And so it was pretty much a done deal. And uh, 
it came, uh, spent the whole day with, with the students and with the other high school students that were spending the day with these college age students. And it came time for us to get ready to go to bed. And I remember that I had my hair, my hair was relaxed at the time, but it was in a, like a, a down state. And so I needed to wrap it to uh-huh. go to bed. Right. And so I started wrapping my hair and I took out my hair scarf and uh, all the girls, none of them were black. And they immediately started asking me all these questions about my hair mm-hmm. and I couldn't take it. I mean, I, I, I answered their questions, but I felt really um, uncomfortable. And so when I went back home, I don't even know if I spoke to my parents or my sister about it, but I was just like, I don't think I can be in a place for four years and constantly explain myself. Wow. Yeah. And I had already applied to Spelman at that point. And so I had a sleepaway with them scheduled as well. And it was a completely different experience. I mean, like they get you hype. Like you walk on campus and they're just like, welcome, you know, and there's music and there's culture. And it just, I didn't have to, I didn't even, I didn't even think about my blackness in a way that was Mm. like I was bizarre or something I needed to explain. It was celebrated blackness. And I grew up in a predominantly black county by the time I left. Um, I grew up in Clayton County in Georgia. Shout out to Clayco. And <laughs> I, uh, when we started in elementary school, it was predominantly white. And of course, white flight takes place. And by the time I graduated from high school, it was predominantly black and still is. I think Clayton County, it's been documented right now, is the blackest county in the state of Georgia. Wow. So um, I just, I, I, from that point on, I knew I couldn't go to Mercer. I was yeah. like, I have to go to Spelman. And I think, I think Spelman had given me like $3,000 and the tuition was like 27 a year and we didn't have it. I mean, you know, student loans, you know, student loans was what paid for that. Mm -hmm. But um, I begged my parents, could I go? And, you know, it was a fight, but they agreed. Um, And now I think they see that it was worth it, but um, got to Spelman and I was like, Hey, look, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to do music education. I'm going to become a choral instructor. I've done choir my entire life. It is my love. It's my joy. I'm going to be a choral instructor and I can't wait. And within the first semester that had changed to vocal performance because it just clicked. I wanted to sing. I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to be a storyteller in song. And so that's how my track with opera really began. Wow. What a, but what a like important journey, you know, that you were like, no, no, no. I know that for my identity and for myself and my well-being, like I need to be going to Spelman, not Mercer. Yes. And I was a pretty bullheaded high school age teenager, you know, like, <laughs> you know, the typical, I know what I need. I know me. And, you know, I don't know anything. But at the time <laughs> I thought I knew it all. And I Sure. Um, yeah. I used my voice and I was like, I cannot go to this school. I, there, I just knew, I just knew. And it's like, so interesting to think about too. Um, I, I was talking to Zurin earlier this year for a, a piece about HBCUs for Playbill actually. And she was saying, you know, black wasn't a qualifier when I went to Howard. Like I was just Zurin. I wasn't the black Sutton Foster. I wasn't this, I wasn't that. 
Um, and I think that is so important in terms of the experiences of attending an HBCU, of just what you were saying. You're like, I didn't have to explain my blackness. And I think that's so important because college is such an important time for finding and, and I guess, evolving your identity, right? Absolutely. And I think it's a, a very tender time too mm. because we are still developing depending on what age you go to college but the typical age 18 to 21 22 you are still developing as a human being as an adult human being and so your personality is still developing and i think for me i needed to feel comfortable in my own skin for so many reasons i was such a shy kid like i mentioned before and so i just always felt lost and in the shadows and and under the you know between the cracks and like never seen at all. And I found my light at Spelman because I was able to join the Glee Club and just be. And I was able to thrive in that. And and I built up a lot of confidence in that experience. And I don't think I would have built the same amount of confidence if I had been at a predominantly white school, in a predominantly white program, right. uh, in, in, in that ex- same experience with a choir and, you know, having to reduce my voice and the timbre and the texture of it, because my voice is not like silky, you know, like a, a boy's choir soprano, you know, I've got a lot of huskiness and richness and thickness that comes into my voice. And I didn't have to explain that or be something else at Spelman. I, I was embraced. I could lean into it. Absolutely. Well, that's, yes, I'm glad you bring that up because I wanted to hear about that too, because uh, when, when you're a black student at a, a PWI, I feel like we hear the stories of like, either I was tree number two in the back, or I was like only brought on when they did a raisin in the sun every four years. Right. Mm-hmm. So for you at Spelman, like what was the kind of repertoire or, or I guess what was the experience like setting different material and finding finding your voice for lack of a better term? Yeah, I think that's a really great question because when you do go to an HBCU, there is a rich history of the Negro spiritual there mm-hmm. um, with the Fisk Jubilee singers, Tuskegee, yes. Morehouse. Um, and actually my first introduction to the Spelman College Glee Club or to both Glee Clubs, Morehouse and Spelman, I was 10 years old and I was watching a PBS special of the Christmas Carol concert. And I remember thinking, oh my God, there's like a hundred black folks on screen that sound like how I sing. Yeah. And, and so I was completely awestruck by that, but put it away, tucked it away, didn't consider it again until senior year in high school. And so when I got to Spelman, Uh, the rep that we were learning uh, in the choir as well as in the studios was uh, art songs, classical music, but always the Negro spiritual was incorporated in it. Even in my junior recital as well as my senior recital, I incorporated a couple Negro spirituals. And I think it's important. I mean, I was honored to do it. I Hmm. I don't think that there's anything lesser than uh when when I sing those songs or when I sing that from that experience, to me, it is beautiful and rich and important and sacred, you know? Mm. And, mm-hmm. you know, we had done some spirituals in high school, but it was always like that very like lily white version of these rich chords and 
at Spellman and at Morehouse, man, the voices are there, right? So it just sounded different. And I was always so proud to be a part of those performances and those experiences. And um, I really was able to break out of my shell and tell stories within the Negro spiritual. So that was mainly my Glee Club experience. As far as rep in, in the actual studio with my voice teacher, we worked on a lot of classical music and art songs. Uh, I don't remember really doing any arias, which really set me back when I got to grad school a few years later, because um, what I did experience and what I feel like some of my colleagues who went to HBCUs uh, experience is that when you leave a HBCU and then go to a PWI, there are some gaps. And um, mm. I don't know why that is. I know for Spellman. I just believe they didn't put a lot of money in the music department and the music mm. program. And that's unfortunate because uh, they used to call the Glee Club the ambassadors of the college. And so we were traveling a lot. We sometimes would travel with the president, not the president of the United States, but the president of the college. <laughs> um, I missed the train when they got to sing for the Obamas. So I'm a little salty, oh. but it's OK. Oh. Um, <laughs> I aged out. I, I aged out. But um, uh, so. We, we were kind of like the ambassadors of the college. So it is a shame that there wasn't more money put into that program to make sure that it was flushed out the way that it should have been. So mm. in that respect, I, I do feel like I missed a few things, but nothing can replace the education I got and just being in an environment and not being, uh, uh, I'm losing my words here, but just not being compared with my colleagues simply on race, you know? We were compared in other ways, you know, being prepared, uh, being uh, timely or, you know, just like speaking out and your intelligence and your your drive. Those were the comparisons. But skin color was never the comparison. And that's what happens when I think when you're in white spaces that you immediately assume that discrimination will, you know, rear its head eventually just because of biases and how this this society works. And so. I didn't have to think about that for four years, like at all. Right. And that was really helpful and useful. I just wish that I was a little more prepared when I got to grad school because I always felt like I was catching up. And I'm sure you can identify with this when you're black. You don't want to feel like you're catching up because you're already catching up all the time anyway. Ooh, a message and a word from Adrian Walker today. Yes, <laughs> uh, absolutely. Well, because it is so many things. It's like one, like, like you were talking about not having to worry about, um, being compared to your classmates by skin color like you know it, it, it's you didn't have to worry about like the double consciousness of it all right like knowing how you're yes. being perceived because you're black in those spaces but then when you are in those white spaces it's like the whole oh I have to work twice as hard uh to like to get half right. as much and it's 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 all of those thought processes that you have to keep and you're like I'm just here to learn I just want to know some arias you know what I'm saying yeah <laughs> like, and I do think and, and I can't speak for other uh, majors because all mm. I did, everything I did was music, 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 everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like music degrees are so subjective and um, that the faculty is used to that structure and that they put all of their uh, focus on the students that they believe in and the others get left behind. And um. so they've decided, oh, you know, uh, student A, B, and E have potential. I'm going to focus on them. And the rest, you know, they, they will fall where they may. 
And Mm -hmm. that is unfair and it needs to be adjusted because we're all paying for the same education. That means you have to educate me. That means even if you don't believe in me, you have to work to make sure that I earn this degree and I get everything, every bit of experience that I need and that I'm paying for. And unfortunately, my grad school experience was not that way. And I saw it happen to quite a few of us. And and at first I thought it was definitely race-based, but I saw some of my other uh, colleagues get completely oversighted and not get the experience they should have gotten in paying for a graduate degree. Wow. And so that I just want to put that out there that those programs need to be adjusted. I, I can't imagine someone earning a medical degree and falling behind and no one like making sure that they're up to, you know, like there's no checks and balances. It's, I can't imagine a medical student not getting an opportunity to work with a cadaver and, 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 you know, understand the anatomy. Whereas you go to a musical program, a grad program, a conservatory, and they've decided that students A, B, and E are the only ones that are going to sing a principal track this semester and they only do a show every four semesters. So, you know, all the rest of the students don't get an opportunity. That is unacceptable. Ooh, yes, you're so that, that's a great example with like the medical stuff and learning those tools. It's like y'all have to be supporting all of your students. Absolutely. Wow. So, and you what were what was the grad program you said you were at? I went to Roosevelt University. Um they have a conservatory there, the Chicago College of Performing Arts. I always mess this up. <laughs> it's too many. It's too many words. And like I told you at the beginning, I have a terrible memory. But it goes. By, they go by CCPA. I was there for two years, um, and by the time I left, I felt so inadequate. Really? I felt wow. like should I even be doing this? I just I all the all of the the positive uh, backing that I had and all of that. Um, self-esteem I had bolstered up from being at Spelman had was almost gone by the time I I left my grad program at Roosevelt University in Chicago and yeah and I mean I feel comfortable speaking on this because I know I'm not alone I've talked to other alumni from that program and they had similar experiences and I think too what really frustrates me is that the students that they put so much energy in are no longer performing Mm. And they like to use my name to uh, recruit students right right now. And I've recently asked them to stop because (gasps) I didn't go to their musical theater program. I went to their grad program for a master's in music. And I was I was on stage twice for very small moments. I didn't learn anything there that I took with me in my career and so, um, yeah, no, thank you. Mm-mm. Wow. No, good for you, though, for speaking up, because that can be really scary. And I think even as a student, you know, it's like uh, it, it can always feel hard to advocate for yourself. Right. Like speaking mm-hmm. truth to power is so scary. So I am proud of you for doing that. That's and that it needed to be said. Yeah, it needed to be said. And if if, if it's like what we're all experiencing now. Right. There's there's been so many instances where we don't speak up because we don't want to rock the boat or maybe maybe this this situation isn't worth it you know maybe I'm being sensitive right now but I think that I am kind of over that I have I have spent so much time keeping myself silent 
for someone else, but at my expense. And I Mm. can no longer do that. Mm. And so, you know, this is the truth of it. This was my experience at Roosevelt. And I have had people DM me, hey, I'm I'm considering, you know, Roosevelt because they saw that I went there and I don't want them to be confused and think that I learned anything from there or that they're the reason that I'm on Broadway. Yeah, absolutely. Let them know. Let them know how it really is. Yeah. I'm curious, too, you know, because that sounds like such a frustrating, um, such a frustrating experience that could lead to you wanting to say, forget it, I'm done, I'm going to go, like, completely pivot into another industry. What what made you want to keep pursuing vocal performance? You know what? It's, it, it's because I had already booked my next job before I graduated. Mm. The year before, I went in for uh, an audition uh, for Porgy and Bess at Court Theater in Hyde Park. And it's on the University of Chicago's campus. And uh, they were casting for Porgy and Bess about a year before rehearsals even started. And uh, I went in because I was a classical voice student. I was like, hey, look, you know, I've done this show once before. Uh, let me see if I can get in this. And I, I knew nothing about musical theater. And so hmm. I showed up to the audition. It was an equity open call or an EPA. And uh, I had a class in about an hour and a half. And so I went up to the monitor and, and mind you, this is my first ever equity audition. I knew nothing about oh, rules or anything. Right. So I went, yeah. So um, I went up to the monitor and I, I told them I had a class to go to. And they, they said, uh, well, you know, there's a list of people ahead of you. Uh, the way this works is you'll have to ask everyone on the list if you can go ahead of them. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I proceeded to ask every single person in the room, could I go ahead of them because I had a class? And I kid you not, they all said, okay. Wow. Like, and I'm shocked now because I know right. the culture and I know like that was wild and yes. I can't believe I did that, but I did. And I went in and I auditioned and then I got a call back and, um, you know, a few callbacks later, I found out that I booked the job and I knew that the first rehearsal was April 11th of the next year and that I didn't finish my degree until May. And so I was concerned because uh, I knew that the rehearsal schedule was going to be all day and I wasn't quite sure how this was going to work with me trying to finish my degree. And um, I also knew that I didn't have the support of the faculty there, which I wasn't used to. When I was at Spelman, I I mean, I felt like I could do no wrong. And Mm. so I was just really confused about the dynamic there. So anyway, um, one day in one of my grad uh, classes, um, the, the the professor at the time stood up and proudly uh, said that one of the students would be leaving the grad program early because he had been accepted into the um, the uh, opera program at the the, um, the Chicago Opera Theater program there, and I took it as an opportunity to announce that I had also booked a job and would be leaving early. Yes. Yep. Sure did. And so they couldn't say anything about it. Whoo, what a moment. <laughs> so I'm curious too, in terms of opera, and I'm I'm ignorant when it comes to opera for sure, but I, I think of I guess even in the musical theater world too, right? I think of like how black women especially are very much put in a box of belting, 
you know, not not being Sopranos and I and you know, Nikki Renee Daniels, I feel like Audra McDonald, like they have talked about their journeys as black female sopranos because it is one of those things where people are like can you can you sound more urban or can you do the like screlty is that a word I think that singers use (laughs) but so you know what what just I think of opportunity so like what I don't know what was that experience like I guess like I mean did you come across those perceptions and assumptions about your voice absolutely and I don't just think it happens in white audiences I think Mm. Um, I think black folks expect black folks to sing a certain way too. Mm. And I remember feeling a little ridiculed by having a classical voice. I remember growing up and my sister just loved my voice and she loved that it was, you know, uh, more of a head tone. And she was probably my biggest fan on, on my voice type and what I sounded like. And, um, I appreciate that so much because it made me feel good about my voice. But yeah, I've been in rooms where they're like, you know, asking me to sing a certain way. And I'm like, I'm not an Effie. Like, I'm not. And I think that that's okay. And I, it's frustrating that people see a black body and expect it to sound or expect this person to sound uh, how they've decided black folks should sound. Mm -hmm. And a voice is a voice. You, it can sound like anything. It can sound like anything. And so, um, yeah, I've experienced that. I think what was great with my first legit job being, you know, in musical theater, being Porgy and Bess, is that I was able to lean into how I naturally sounded anyway. And no one in that production was asking me to belt anything. Right, right. And I I think what I came up against when I moved more and more into musical theater was that I was resting on my church chops and what I had learned as a church singer in Forest Chapel Baptist Church in Clayton County, you know, (laughs) and learning, you know, how to sing soprano that way. And so I just fell back into that anytime someone wanted that. But, you know, my husband Austin and I tease that I have like a real strong mix, but I've learned how to mix to protect my voice um, because it's just never worth it to, 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 to do something you can't do or that's not suiting your voice. And I had to learn that lesson getting to Broadway, doing the eight shows a week without mm-hmm. a closing date, you know, because right. in Chicago up until then, I had done regional theater and there was always a closing date. And so I could, I was like, okay, I got six weeks to sing this way. I'm good. But mm-hmm. when you get on a Broadway stage, it's, oh no, 52 weeks. And then again, and then again. Right. And, <laughs> and so I was, my voice was suffering from that. And it took a while for me to figure out how to navigate it because up until that point I could just wing it and now I couldn't anymore and you've heard Shadowland like Shadowland it it does get into a strong belt at the end and that's what they want you know it's a call it's a shout it's not sing-songy and yeah yeah, and they want straight tone and so that was a struggle too is because to to sing something straight tone for someone like me that has spent you know, several years learning how to keep the line and the vibrato and the flow of air going to strip it is uh, so much concentration, so much. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I, I can identify with with, you know, you said Audra and Nikki just um, not being the typical black singer. And I think it's, it's a great conversation to have is that no one no one's voice should be typical anything. 
Exactly. And because it is so limiting, like I think about Nikki, I know she's talked about, you know, she wanted to like audition for Belle in Beauty and the Beast. And, you know, whoever the director was, was, was like, I don't see you as Belle. And like there could perhaps he there could be nuances with that. But because of the context of the world we live in, it's like, no, she should be able to be seen as Belle. Like it's yeah. her voice fits that role. She yeah. deserves the opportunity. And I just, yeah, I, I, I think that's just so much to think about in terms of, vo- like, what what voices we expect with different body types, different race, different, you know, um, physical qualities, I guess is what I want to say, and how we need to, like, start unpacking those assumptions, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So... Porgy and Bess is such an interesting mm. show because of so many different reasons, but like it's considered opera. It's considered musical theater. I mean, it was written by white men, which is a whole other thing, but like, d- was that kind of your transition into the musical theater world? Yeah, but only because it was done at a theater that had tapered it all down. So there were only 14 actors on stage when usually Porgy and Bess can have upwards of 100 actors on stage. Mm. And so um, actually my first paying job was right out of college. I had booked a production of Porgy and Bess with the opera, the Atlanta Opera Company, and they were taking it to Paris. And so I was in the chorus and the day after I graduated, I got on a flight to Paris and stayed there for six weeks to do Porgy and Bess. So I was familiar with the show, but only in the operatic sense. Mm, And so fast forward three years later, uh, doing it on this smaller scale, so much less was expected of me that I couldn't believe it. I, um, and, and it was, it was beautiful and everyone's voice was so different. They had hired a couple of classically trained singers, but then a lot of the singers in the production were musical theater singers. And so in between shows and, you know, on rehearsal breaks, we would talk and get to know each other. And they wanted to know who I was because they all knew each other already. They had been on the Chicago scene uh, and they were like, who are you? You know, like, tell us more. And so I explained to them who I was and that, you know, I was an opera student and they were like, well, you know, you could, you could do musical theater that, you know, and they would mention theaters I hadn't heard of before. And, audition calls they were hearing about and stuff. And I kind of fell into theater because of that experience. And so, you know, a few questions back, you asked, how did you, you know, continue to sing? It was because I found an avenue that worked for me and that I felt welcomed in. And I felt like Mm. maybe I can pull it off in this way when I didn't feel very welcomed in the opera world. Right. Right. Well, an opera, like, is, again, I, like I was saying, I don't know it very well, but it does feel like, I don't even know if welcoming is the right word, but it, it just, like, the lack of diversity there seems more obvious than, I guess, in other areas of the performing arts. Absolutely. There is, it is highly lacking in diversity, and it, uh, a lot of these uh, opera singers get pigeonholed into only doing Porgy and Bess their entire careers. Right. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. So then I, keep going. Sorry. I'm just getting overwhelmed. Keep going. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, I hear you. It's 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 nuanced. And then it also feels very black and white at the same time. It's like very clear as day. But um, I think that I wanted just because that that age old feeling of no, I don't want to do what you expect of me. I want to do what I see everybody else doing. And and I remember, um, 
you know, going to performance class every day in grad school or not every day, but once a week and singing whatever songs I was working on. And when I booked Porgy and Bess and I was covering Bess in the production, so I had to learn her material. So I brought some of it to my performance class mm-hmm. and I'll just I, I'll never forget the one of the vocal coaches there said, Adrian, you sound so good singing this. Why don't you just be one of those actors that tours the world doing Porgy and Bess? <gasps> and I was so insulted. And yes. I, was, I, I don't remember how, what I said or how I reacted. I just remember thinking, I don't want to. And right. I shouldn't have to just because that's a, a clear path that white folks have carved for Black singers. I should be grateful to sing Porgy and Bess. And don't get me wrong. I, I actually love listening to Porgy and Bess. I think that the voices and everything is just beautiful to me. And it may be because I had so, you know, long experiences with it that it just stayed with me. And I had a beautiful time at Court Theater doing it. But the history of it is complicated and frustrating. And I was so insulted by her comment. I I don't even think I was able to like look her in the eye for the rest of that program. Mm -mm. But um, that's the thing is that it's like, here, we've made this avenue for you. Take it and quit complaining. Right. And I, it, it's unacceptable. I, I should be able to do whatever I set my mind to. As long as I'm qualified, I'm doing the work, I'm prepared, I have the drive, you shouldn't decide where I fit in. Absolutely. Cosign, I'm snapping. Like, that's, like you said, unacceptable. It's inappropriate. It's It, it reminds me of, like, I feel like what I've read stories about dancers being told, black dancers, that they can only dance at, like, Alvin Ailey or Dance Theater of Harlem, you know? And it's mm-hmm. like, no, if Misty Copeland wants to dance at ABT, she can do that and that's allowed it should mm-hmm. be uh, yeah I- and just the problem the same issue that they have with black dancers bodies is the same issue folks have mm. with black voices not understanding it not taking the time not welcoming it because it doesn't fit the narrative that they're used to and they're uncomfortable right absolutely absolutely because people just love to categorize box things up and not have to figure out if there's any gray area and nuance to it. Yeah. Absolutely. Because I am a soprano, but I'm a soprano that can sing a, a G and, a, and a, down to an E. And that's mm. not typical. So they don't know what to do with my voice. They don't know what to do with that. Wow. And I don't have to fit in, in your fach. Like I can be whatever my voice is, you know? And that's mm. something that always upset me about the classical world is like having to fit in a category. And I think that's, you know, for all singers, you know, Anyway. Yeah, that, no, the audacity of that program teacher. I'm like, no, mm-mm. mm-mm. Cut. So, oh, Lord, okay. So, I mean, and it's great, yes, like you said, it was great that your the experience you had in Chicago, um, meeting all of these people, finding about finding out about new avenues. What made you decide to audition for The Lion King and <laughs> make your Broadway debut? <laughs> Uh, I love that because I don't know that anyone decides to audition for The Lion King. They're like, oh, you want me to come in? I'm coming in, you know? Fair enough, fair enough. But um, I was on tour with Dirty Dancing, and it's funny because a few months before then, I had went to a Lion King open call but had to leave the line because I was in tech for a play. And so I was really bummed. I was like, oh, I missed my chance. I'll never, you know, they'll never see me in this sea of people. and. 
I was on tour and my agent sent me an email. Hey, Adrian, the Lion King's holding auditions. They're looking for a Nala replacement. And I'm like, what? You know, right. also thinking there's no chance. And um, so I only had a couple of personal days. So I asked, could I send in a tape for the first round? And they were like, yeah, send in a tape. Sent in a tape. I've recently watched that tape. It is God awful. I don't know how I got a callback. It's fine. It's fine. Um, I think my height helped. Height and age at the time helped for sure. But anyway, uh, Mark Brandon, who casts uh, for The Lion King all over, uh, gave me a call and gave me some notes and said, okay, so these are your notes. We're calling you back. Come to New York. See how it goes. So I went, flew into New York or overnight flight. Like, I don't even know how I had a voice because she doesn't like to show up if I don't sleep, you know? So I was like, <laughs> oh God. So uh, I walk in there after having changed in the airport oh, and I'm Lord. walking in and I was like, I have nothing to lose. I'm just going to like, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be myself. And I kind of have a habit of uh, unless I'm super, super nervous, I have a habit of really dropping my guard in audition rooms. And I think that's really helped yeah. me a lot because I, I just have no filter yeah. and I say whatever comes out and I, I don't, I, thank God it hasn't hurt me. But anyway, so I walked in there and I sang for them and I did the scene and they kept me for a while to do scenes with other Simbas they were looking at that day. And it's interesting because I don't know if they were looking for a Simba on tour because they didn't end up, you know, casting a Simba that go round. But anyway, um, came back later that day, auditioned again, came back the next day for a movement call, was terrified as hell about this movement call because <laughs> I, you know, I'm a, I'm a classically trained singer. I've, I live, like, I've done maybe like five dance calls at this point and they were all horrible experiences. Oh, no. So, um, <laughs> So I go into this movement call and immediately the dance director like hates me because I was 10 minutes late because I took the train in the wrong direction Oh no! and uh, made it through. And then they, they cut a few of the girls and it was just down to me and one other actress who is amazing and incredible, by the way. And I, I still need to ask her if it's OK if I share this part of my story that she's in it. But anyway, um, <laughs> so uh, she and I, we tried on the Nala head. And then, and that was so cool. Like, I couldn't right. believe it. I was like, if this is the way it ends, I'm fine, you know? Right. <laughs> right. And so we're trying on the Nala head and we're doing this Javanese movement with uh, the resident director and, uh, and yeah. And then I, and then it was over and I thanked everybody because I actually had a good time. It was actually yeah. really fun and um, uh, took the air train to JFK. And by the time I got off the air train, I had a voicemail. <gasps> from my agent. Yep. Oh my I couldn't believe it. Gosh. I could not believe it. So that's, that's how it all happened. And can I say that is like such a New York, like that's a welcome to New York story being like, <laughs> I had to change in the airport. Like, <laughs> Oh my gosh, that is, but how exciting. Like, it sounds like you were running on adrenaline yeah. and like, you know, wow. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I still don't know how I had a voice that day. It was just, by the grace of God, like it was, it felt like it was meant to be. Cause like I told you, like, usually if I don't sleep, it's a wrap, but yeah, yeah. somehow, some way. <laughs> so then as someone who, you know, you weren't as familiar with musical theater earlier in your life. Um, what was the experience of like making your Broadway debut? Did it feel as high stakes for you? Or were you like, Oh, I'm just excited 
to do the Lion King, like this iconic Disney story. <laughs> oh man, it did not feel, I wish that I had approached <laughs> it like, oh, look at this story I get to tell. No, I am so high strung. I am wrapped up in a bundle of anxiety and nerves on any given day. Like if I am going into an environment I've never been in before, I I have nightmares the night before. So, right. um, so no, I was really high strung about the whole thing and I wanted to be perfect and I wanted to be, you know, exemplary and I wanted to be, you know, just fill all the boxes and, and not let them down. And I was like, you know, because up until that point, I think it had been several years since they had cast a Nala that hadn't at least done it somewhere else on Ooh. a tour or anything. And so I felt like, I had a lot to prove. And when I met the cast, I was like, they're probably all looking at me like, who is she? You know? And so <laughs> I'm putting words in there, putting words in their mouth. But I, I, I was, I was terrified and it was not what I expected at all. I'll tell you a funny story because I'm so like occasionally self-centered and did not know what was up when you replace in a Broadway show. But I remember walking in and asking uh, the stage manager, would there be a party after my debut? <laughs> oh my God, I'm obsessed. <laughs> because I thought, I just thought, you know, up until then I had only done um, regional theater, except for Dirty Dancing. And so we all started together and we all opened together and we all finished together. And so I was so used to the party aspect. So very naive, uh, if that gives you any insight into my my headspace at the time. But no, it was, it was so hard, Felicia. It was so hard. Was and my, I mean, it was so physically taxing. Mm. I was in a sublet. I was planning mm. my wedding. It was just, it was really, really hard. <laughs> and I don't really remember much of my debut except my first line. And I don't remember singing anything. I don't remember how the Nala Simba fight went. Uh, and I remember in my bow that I just thought I did it. And then it was on a Tuesday. So I had a matinee the oh, next wow. day. And yeah. It's just, it's weird because for you, it's the one of the biggest moments of your life. But right. when you're a replacement for everyone else, it's just another show. Ooh, right. Right. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 and that's something I feel like at least as audience members, we don't think about because it is like, or we don't think about the aspect of like getting put in and stuff and how you guys are like pra you're rehearsing and then maybe you have what you're put in but everyone else is in their street clothes and like yeah. this, this and that and you try to like gel into this world and you immerse yourself in it without much to go on I think we all think of like the original Broadway cast getting together and they're all in the rehearsal room together but as a replacement it's not that way oh yeah and what's interesting too is with a show like The Lion King almost everyone except for Lindy Way, is a replacement. She's the only original yeah. cast member. So, and there's such a, a wealth of history and knowledge um, and experience with her. But um, I say that to say that we should all know what it feels like to be a replacement. Right. But um, I think over time, it just, the feeling lessens and you forget, you just forget. And did, I don't know, the legacy of Nala's is, like, iconic to me. Think of Heather Headley and all this stuff. Like, did did you get to meet them? Or, or is there a Nala sisterhood? I don't know. <laughs> I wish there was a Nala sisterhood. That would be pretty amazing. I've spent a little time with Kissy Simmons. Like, she's come in um, a little bit here and there. And she's always really warm. And Chantel Riley, who I replaced, came in quite a lot um, when I first started. Um 
but you know, I wish there was because I feel like the track is so unique and mm-hmm. so challenging and there needs to be like a Nala support group. Right. <laughs> but um, but no, I haven't gotten a chance to meet Heather Headley. I would love to. I'm ho- hoping for that day. But um, what was really cool was the, the 20th, the Lion King 20th, because yes. the entire audience was filled with former cast members, former crew, former designers, or not former designers, but you know, the designers, the creatives. Um, And so I knew while we were performing, I was like, all the Nala's are in the audience. Like, how am I going to handle this? Um, But it was, it was magical. It was magical. Mm. And um, yeah, now that you say that, I mean, maybe we can get a, a little Nala chain going somewhere. I would love to do like an experience where we all sit down and talk. Right. Oh um, my gosh. Yeah. I think that would be really cool. That would be so cool. Maybe for the, cause what that was 2017 was 20th. Are yeah. 25th maybe soon. You have a good memory. That. Yeah. <laughs> well, I got to see that performance actually. You were there. Oh my uh-huh. gosh. Well it then was, you know how loud it was. Yes. The energy was like other level. Yeah. I, yeah. I, and I know CD came out and she was like, nah, and just the eruption. Right. from the audience I was like Jelani and I were in the back of the house because oh, yeah. sometimes we can watch the circle of life and so we were back in the back of the house in our street clothes and when it erupted like that we just like held each other's hands oh. because we were like okay are you ready for this you right. um there's there's just nothing like it uh, see I I'm like into this like Nala sisterhood idea more and more because like you're so right it is such a legacy um mm-hmm. to be a part of and and Jelani's so sweet and Bradley's so sweet love the Simbas and yeah all the things but um I'm so glad you got to be a part of that what a like I mean you know from going to like okay you didn't get to do it your first time you wanted to audition for them and then getting to celebrate the 20th anniversary is super exciting and powerful it's it's still like so crazy to me that it's even a part of my life you know right right. yeah Yeah, part of your personal legacy for sure Mm -hmm. well and then I was curious too to talk about kiss me Kate because that is the like classical golden age kind of vibe um and I have to say another opening another show like when I saw it I cried like I just love that song so much and you could just see the joy coming off of y'all um so, I, I mean, you don't have to talk specifically about that song, but I wanted to hear about your experience uh, doing that show and taking on the role of Hattie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, it's it's so funny, and I've never really said this before, but when I auditioned for Kiss Me, Kate, I remember my agent threw it my way, and I was like, I do not know this show. I don't know what this is. And so I had to do a lot of research And I read the script and, you know, let me just be frank. There's a lot of shows I don't know. So it is not a surprise that I didn't know these shows. Um, So I did some research and I was like, oh, okay. And then the audition was simply sing an audition cut of another opening. And I was like, so no sides, nothing, you know? And, And I was like, Hattie doesn't say much. And I just couldn't really grasp much so I think Mm -hmm. for me it was a struggle of developing a character without much to go on which is something it's a skill I think you learn as an ensemble member a lot is that you're like okay Uh, this is what I need to do how do I make this moment real for me and I had to bring those tools back in 
Like, I don't have much to go on. How do I create this character? How do I make her a real human being? And, um, and also Kelly really didn't want this whole like servant (laughs) relationship. Uh, You know, uh she, she, from jump, she was like, I want them to be friends. So fix it so that they're friends. If they're, you know, Amanda Green was coming in and fixing some moments in the libretto, but everything had to be approved by the estate. And so any moment mm-hmm. they could add something that helped flesh that out and kind of reduce this, like, you know, woman waiting on another woman aspect, because Kelly really didn't want that. Yeah. And so um, that was, I, I feel like I kind of had to fill in a lot of holes and, um, yeah, so it wasn't, it was, it was, it was fun. There was a lot of, um, there was less pressure. There was less pressure mm-hmm. than I felt at the Lion King. Um, mm-hmm. And I felt like I could just be, you know, like I, did, I wasn't an animal, you know, I'm wearing heels and right. um, Too Darn Hot was so much fun. And, you know, Warren Carlisle Ooh. made us all dance. Like he knew that I was not a dancer (laughs) and you know I had a session with him and James T. Lane and and we were all just working on the whole dance and Mm -hmm. I was like Warren I'm trying my hardest but I can't can't get down like on the floor (laughs) in a count like how do I get down on the floor in one count and crawl under this man and I was just like this is a lot (laughs) and so it's it's what I loved is that he made me learn it all anyway Mm. He, he made me do it all anyway for two hours, like made me do it. And then he decided what I did well. And he put that in the show. That two dart hot number that it was it 12 jumps. How many jumps did ended up being in it? Yeah, I think Good it was Lord. 12. I think it was 12 in my brain. I'm like, no, nah, it was 16. But no, I think it was. 12. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like after five, it would all blend together. Like it could be 12. It could be 48. I'm like, I was tired just watching y'all. <laughs> It was, you know, it was such a thrill because after the first time we did it, like the first preview and the way the audience reacted, we just came to expect that kind of reaction after jump eight, because I think everyone's like, oh, they're only <laughs> going to jump eight times, right? Right. Like they jumped four, okay, maybe four more. But then when you keep going, it's the same swell of um, excitement. And I think that's what, that's what made it possible is that we were just, we were, uh, thriving off the audience's influence and energy in that moment. And also Warren was a stickler about mm. those jumps, about the placement, about the knee tuck, about the height. And uh, we would have jump checks in rehearsal where oh, he wow. would, he would just, the beat would be going and he would call your name. You didn't know you were next and you had to do the 12 <gasps> jumps. And then he went to someone else, do the 12, you know, one by one. No way. Yeah, it happened several times. Yeah. Definitely. Wow. I have, like, I already had respect for all y'all, but after that, that is like, (laughs) I could not. (laughs) One by one, I would be be biting my nails. That is so wild. Who, baby. But look, it paid off because it looked excellent. Oh, man. Well, thank you for that. I mean, it's all Warren and those, that incredible cast. And Kelly used to watch it from the backstage every, every night. Really? Every night she watched it and then she would run to her queue. Wow. That's, mm-hmm. oh, that's, that's so sweet. Did, yeah. So did y'all, cause I mean, obviously your characters are close to y'all bond over like opera things while you were in the show together. You know what? We didn't, we didn't even <gasps> sit down and chat about that. I, uh, we, we talk about other things like, yeah. but, but I think 
I, I never wanted to like take too much of her time or get in her mm. way. And Kelly doesn't, I mean, she never made me feel like I was, but mm. I just was so aware of how much she had to do in this show that True. I was like, I would only take little snippets and I'm like, okay, I'm going to excuse myself. I'm leaving. You know, I'm going to let you focus. And she's like, you're fine. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm going to leave. <laughs> you know, I got to go. I got to get out of your way. Yours. No, 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 no. You're Lily Vanessa. I have to go. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we uh, we mainly just chatted about family and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, house things and food and, you know, stuff like that. Not We didn't really talk about career-like stuff at all. Talk shop, yeah. I always find the crossover between, you know, performers who have done opera and musical theater so fascinating. But um, I suppose family and, and food and homes and all those things are much more interesting than that, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I think so I think so I remember I was having some vocal trouble um because I did double duty which is the death of all actors you know you're doing a a workshop or a reading and then also doing a show but um I was having vocal issues and I remember I you know she holds my hand and you're like another old man you know and my voice cracked and she gripped my hand and and it was it got me through, you know. Ah. And then afterwards, when I made it through the ending, she was like, "That's what I'm talking about," you know. Like it's like lights out. She's like, "That's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of stuff that inspires me." And I was just like so floored right. by how she was cheering me on. That yeah, I'll never forget that moment. Ah, uh, see, you have like pinch me moments. The 20th anniversary, Kelly holding <laughs> your hand. I love it. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and, and I mean, thinking about all of this, right. So you have had this incredible career and I love it because it wasn't necessarily like a straight shot. It wasn't necessarily a straight line. You know, I feel like you've done the twists and turns that have led you on this incredible journey. Um, and so I wanted to talk about 32 bar cut because I feel like your journey has led you to create this beautiful thing during the theater shutdown, um, in having important conversations and giving fellow performers a platform to just be honest and to take down like the actor facade for a little bit and get real about their experiences. So I wanted to hear about the origin story, like, you know, what all inspired you to do it? Thank you. Um, So I was in Holt Summit, Missouri, which is where my in-laws live. My husband's dad lives there. And uh, I was sitting at a computer and I didn't know, I was just like, I need to do something with myself and I don't know what that is. And I thought, oh, what if I start a blog about auditions? Mm, and what mm. if I call it 32 Bar Cut? And I was like, nah, there's no way. Some, somebody's already taken that name, for sure, for sure. <laughs> and sure enough, the domain was available. So I just bought it for 20 bucks and I sat on it for a while. And um, then I was talking with my friend Sherry a couple of months after that and explaining to her that I wanted to hold some master classes and help young students with their auditions because I feel like I learned so much by trial and error that I wanted to help people. Like, I felt like, why didn't anyone tell me about this? Or why didn't anyone tell me about that? Like, why did I have to learn this the hard way? Let me help somebody and and not having to learn things the hard way. And she mentioned YouTube. And I thought, Sherry, I don't want to be on YouTube. And she was like, (laughs) you should try it. I watch YouTube all the time. People learn things from YouTube. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. So that's how it started. I was just going to give audition tips and then sing Mm. a song, like sing a 32 bar cut that kind of identified that audition tip. 
but that only lasted like three episodes. I was like, I'm, I think people are responding to me talking about personal experiences, not singing, not giving audition advice. And so that's kind of Mm. where I leaned in. And that's, that was a good life lesson for me because you kind of, you might have a course in mind, but you have to lean into what's working. And, and that may mean abandoning your original course or letting it veer off in a different way, which is kind of how my life has gone. So, (laughs) so I, uh, I, I decided to still share some audition advice and then uh, also share personal stories. And so that was the, the framework and the foundation of 32 bar cut. But then I, I realized, you know, I only have so many personal stories. I need to invite my friends on and my colleagues on. And I was like, I don't know if they're going to do this with me. I don't know how I'm going to do it technically, but I want to sit down with them and talk. And I just want it to feel like a conversation. I don't want it to feel like an interview. I want it to feel like people are getting like a little peephole view of two actors sitting down having coffee or something. Yeah, I love that. And so that's kind of how it was born. And, you know, I gave myself deadlines. I was like, I need to have the first few guests scheduled by January. Like I need to have it on the books or I'm not doing this at all. And it worked out. And so many people said yes. And so I just kept going and going. And my husband got in on it. Austin, like was, he was like, I'm going to, I want to be a part of this with you. I believe in this with you. And so he started designing the website for it. He started, he found a great program for us to do the video capture. And he's such a whiz in all of that technical stuff and technology and sound and logic and all this that I know nothing about. And so I couldn't do it without him. And bit by bit, we were able to not only just teach and educate folks about theater behind the curtain, but I feel like it's been really therapeutic for me and I hope for the guests too, to just sit down in a safe space and say how they feel and talk about their experience and laugh and, you know, not quite cry, but I think just be reminded of how they got where they are and, 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 and the steps along the way. And we have so many more guests coming up. I know we're only on episode eight right right now, but I'm so excited for everyone to see this because we're not just talking about audition stories or, you know, um, how I got to where I am, but we're also talking about, you know, the struggles and like, you know, being in a room and being told to be more Asian or be more black or be more urban, you know, which is Mm -hmm. like the, the synonymous word for black, um, And I just love that people feel safe and comfortable to share this because I want everyone to see the show so that we can start to see this world of theater and uh, maybe even the world. I don't know. I might be thinking way too grand. Start to change because people have been silent for so long. And I feel like we're really in that sweet spot where people don't want to be silent anymore. And we just got to grab hold of it. Yes. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, the the lesson you said you kind of learned, it's like those personal stories, that's what helps activate change in so many instances, I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, of, of just getting to witness a little bit of vulnerability from someone and it can change a thought process. It can expose someone to an experience they had ne- would have never otherwise known about and, and, you know, really channel that empathy that I think, is so important. I, I just, I love it. I think it's such an important space for performers to have. 
Absolutely. Well, well, thank you. I, I think what you're doing too with call and response is, is really the same thing is that you're sitting down, you're having a conversation and folks are getting to share their truth and their story. So it's important. Oh, thank you. You're so sweet. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it is so important, like you said, to just talk about our stories because everyone has a different lived experience. Even if some of our identities align of like being black or, or being women, it's like mm-hmm. n- no one has the same experience. So being able to just continue to hear those, I think can only help. Um, and, and I, I want to give a shout out to Austin too, because the website for you and for 32 bar cut, like y'all really have your whole tech presence together. Like it's so <laughs> impressive. I'm like, okay, yes. The press little section y'all have the bio. It's all just like chef's kiss. Thank you. My friend Billy built my site. Oh, and shout then, out to Billy too then. Oh yeah. Billy is, he's, he is amazing. Felicia, he is a recording artist, a web designer, graphic designer, and also one of the nicest humans on the planet. But um, he designed mine and then uh, Austin designed 32 Bar Cut and learned code, Ooh. learned code to do it. Like, I, I don't even understand this man. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, no, I mean, Austin and Billy, like, I salute because it's just, that stuff is not easy. And they make, it makes me be like, oh, I can be a coder. Like, I could build a website like this. And I'm like, Wait, I, don't even, I wouldn't know what I'm doing. It's, it's stunning. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I actually don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> no I mean I I'm I it looks like you know what you're doing and I think it's obviously okay for us to show our messiness but I also want to celebrate the fact that you have done really important and significant things um that will have lasting and resonating impact I think so you are succeeding even if you feel like you aren't some days Wow, I needed to hear that. Thank you thank you thank you (laughs) yes I am affirming I am um (laughs) And of course, this happens every episode. I, I, I feel like I could do this for hours and that's a problem. Like, you know, but um, it's, I know this is only the beginning uh, for us and I'm just so excited for you spending time with me today. And with that, I have to ask the final two questions to wrap up the podcast. Okay. Then I'm done. Um, <laughs> okay, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, just, yeah, the first question being, if you could recommend a piece of Black art, whether that's a TV show, a book, a musical album, anything uh, for our listeners to take in, what would it be? Okay, let me tell you, I am in love with two authors. Okay. Completely in love. I love sci-fi fantasy um, or anything um, apocalyptic. And so I would say N.K. Jemison, her trilogy, The Broken Earth, like get into it. Now, I will say the first book takes a second because there's a bit of a like a learning curve with just the world <laughs> and the environment. And so if you don't hang in there for 100 pages, you are going to miss out. So you got to hang in for at least 75, 100 pages. Okay. It will be very confusing, but you will be so <laughs> glad you stuck with it. And then the other author who I just completely, I completely love is Octavia Butler. Yes. And she's, she's no longer with us, but um, her trilogy, Lilith's Brood, which you can get on Amazon in a full, you know, like thousand page book. Right. <laughs> you can get all of them together. Lilith's Brood is my whole entire jam. And okay. I think that they're turning it into a series 
which is so exciting. I can't even contain it. It's like as exciting as knowing that the Golden Compass was coming back as a series because I read that joint when I was 10 and it is still one of my favorite set of books. You were ahead of the curve. Yeah, I'm a total Octavia Butler fan. It's actually ridiculous. Yes, I love it. I love it. I love sci-fi fantasy because I feel like that's often a genre that people don't think about Black people occupying. But like Afrofuturism and all that stuff, I'm like, yes, we need more of it. Yeah, and that's why I stand for it because both of these women are Black women and I love the stories. And I love how N.K. Jemisin describes the way the characters look. Mm. It is Mm -hmm. otherworldly. She gives different words for the texture of their hair and their skin and their features that you really don't know what they look like. Um, It's just, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible to me. I, I, I love it. Yeah. I love it too. Yes. These recommendations are, are brilliant. I love it. Um, and so then, similarly, if you could give a shout out to some fellow black artists, I usually say one, but people were like, one is simply not enough. And I'm like, thank you for the feedback. Um, so if you want to give some love, give some shout outs to some fellow black artists, who would it be? Fellow meaning I, I we are acquainted? <laughs> no, no. I think people have been like Cynthia Revo, and they didn't necessarily know her. Or, oh, um, cool, cool, cool. Issa Rae, you know. Oh, well, yes. Issa Rae <laughs> is like, I, I feel such a kindred spirit with her. But um, I would say, I mean, we've mentioned them a couple of times, but Bradley is doing some amazing original work. Uh, Bradley Gibson, he's got a new single out, Fool. It's been out for a few months. If, I mean, the song is a vibe, but honestly, you got to hop on YouTube and watch the video because it's just, it's worth it. And it's stunning, stunning. Uh, so I definitely give a shout out to to Bradley for that. And um, yeah, I'll say Bradley. That's great. No, I love it. Shout out to Bradley Gibson. He he is a Capricorn uh, brother of mine. <laughs> so I, I love him so, so much. So I you I should see him. his dressing room. His dressing room is has Capricorn written all over it. <laughs> I love that. We need a tour. I would I would love to see his dressing room. It's all done up. <laughs> oh man, it's like it's pristine. I imagine his apartment is as well. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. If folks want to follow you to follow your journey on social media, where can they do that? Folks can follow me on Instagram at a song is in my heart. Um, I wish that that was a little shorter and easier, but, uh, (laughs) Instagram won't let me change my name. So sorry, y'all it's at a song is in my heart. And uh, if you want to check out 32 bar cut, you can follow that as well at 32 bar cut, or you can go to 32 bar cut.com. Uh, well, Adrian, again, this was so much fun. I know we could do it for hours, but I appreciate you so, so much, um, for chatting with me today. It was so great to learn more about you. Felicia, I have had a blast and I'm so grateful to you for asking me to do this. I was so surprised and honored and I'm <laughs> I'm just grateful to you. Just and, and you know, it didn't feel like work. It just felt like catching up and chatting and that's always the best part. Oh, Adrian, thank you. That is so sweet. I really appreciate that. And the feeling is very, very mutual. It was just having fun and having a good conversation. So thank you so much for being here. And I can't wait to see you, you know, continue to shine. Until next time, y'all. 